May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. About halfway through, Little Gods, which is an extraordinary novel written by Men Jing, a husband and wife have a bitter argument. This part of the story takes place in China in late spring 1989. Thousands of workers and students are streaming into Beijing to protest in Tiananmen Square. I think you know what happens next. Well, Su Lan hates that her husband has caught, quote, democracy fever. He's never cared about these issues before, and he certainly doesn't understand them. In fact, she says to him, you're using this political fervor as an excuse to look away from the weakness inside yourself. Now, I know these kind of illustrations don't really work when you haven't read the book, but let me tell you, that accusation jumps off the page. It packs a huge punch. It feels so painful because it feels so true. Sulan's husband has been using politics as an excuse or as a way of avoiding more pressing issues inside of himself. Her words caught him in the act. And I'm wondering if you know what that feels like. If you know what it feels like to be exposed or to be caught red-handed in a situation that you can't bargain your way out of, you can't make excuses for, you can't argue with. Like, have you ever been in a car accident and you were at fault? There is nothing more dispiriting, deflating, discouraging than waiting on the side of the road for someone else to come and fix your mistake. Well, what I want to say here at the outset is that Good Friday should feel like that. It should feel like getting caught in the act because we are implicated in the death we commemorate. It's tempting to distance ourselves from the brute facts of the story we just read. Why was Jesus Christ betrayed, humiliated, tortured, executed? Why did he die? People like me are often guilty of using theology to go behind the scenes, to quickly explain what it means. Well, Jesus had to die to pay the punishment for our sins. Or Jesus died to, to make this once and for all example of sacrificial love. Or, or Jesus' death wasn't actually a defeat. It was a way of defeating evil powers or unjust structures. And like, my intention is not to be polemical. I think all those things are true. And they're all present in the interpretation of this event. But look, God didn't kill Jesus. Demons didn't kill Jesus. People killed Jesus. And not Jews or, or Roman stormtroopers. Respectable people. People that were religious and decent and law-abiding. People that would now be wearing masks when they enter the supermarket. People with motivations not too dissimilar from you and me. 
We heard in, in the Gospel of John that the charge against Jesus was that he claimed to be the Son of God. I don't think that's the full story, though. Because Jesus' claim to be God would have been laughed at or at least ignored if he hadn't backed it up. If he hadn't done the kind of stuff that only God can do. Jesus healed. He liberated. He took all of the wonderful ideas about God that are in the Old Testament and put them into practice. You following me? He didn't just talk about God's mercy. He actually forgave people. He didn't offer discourses about the power of God. He made sick people well. And he did all of this God stuff extravagantly and indiscriminately. He did it to and for people who were considered off limits. People who were getting rich off injustice. People who were selling their bodies. People who didn't really care that much about God. They just wanted help. You might say Jesus did all the right stuff to all the wrong sorts of people. He colored outside the lines. And his presence heralded the end of a certain kind of world. A world where we lose the lives we so carefully construct. And so he had to go. Getting rid of him, in some sense, was a matter of self-defense. Here's another way to, to frame this, and this is what I want to try and explore. Jesus was so threatening to people, and Jesus remains so threatening to people, because he represents the end of a world governed by law. Governed by law. What do I mean by that? Well, I don't mean the law, like the parts from Leviticus that we struggle to understand. And nor do I mean the, the, the rule of law, like Jesus was a, a primitive anarchist. When I say governed by law, I mean a world in which we relate to God ourselves, and others on the basis of judgment. A world filled with categories and camps. Good, bad, devout, indifferent, clean, profane, beautiful, ugly, tenured, adjunct. That's for a couple of you. Thriving, struggling. A world governed by law is a world of categories and camps. It's a world in a word where we have control. A world where we have the right and responsibility to label who is good or successful or cool or flourishing. That's the world that we live in. And that's the, that's the world of law. And Jesus is a threat to that world. And so that world, our world, is always trying to get rid of Jesus. I mentioned at the outset a car accident I, I am a Christian because of a car accident. I ran my car into a brick wall when I was 18. And I got a DUI, and I spent the night in jail. And God met me in that place of desperation. And so Jesus did all of that extravagant, indiscriminate, surprising God stuff for me. But you know what? It probably took a year 
until I reverted back into being basically the same person. And I'm not saying like using drugs or, or building an identity around being the craziest guy at the party. In fact, it was the exact opposite. I was building an identity around being the strongest, most committed, most responsible, prayerful, devout Christian. The focus of my identity had changed. But the framework was basically the same. I was relating to God, myself, and others on the basis of judgment. Good, bad, cool, lame, thriving, struggling. I was, I was still living under law. I had just changed the definitions. And if someone would have come into my life and threatened to get rid of that whole structure, I would have freaked out. I needed to know that I was enough, good enough, responsible enough, that I had changed enough. I needed the voice of the law to ratify my own self-worth, the unmediated, uncomplicated voice of promise. You are my beloved child. In you, I am well pleased. That was not enough. And that, friends, is what Jesus represents. In him, God speaks in a voice of promise. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. He inaugurates a world where we relate to God, ourselves, and others on the basis of grace, not judgment. He brings us into a world where we are entirely and relentlessly loved, where we are unconditionally enough. You know, it's still a world of good and bad and right and wrong, but in Jesus, we become so enveloped in God's yes, enveloped in God's love, that the markers and arbiters of our worth simply stop to matter, stop mattering. They just become questions that we no longer have to ask. Now you say, well, geez, everyone wants to live like that. Yeah, in theory, but in practice, no. Because in practice, it is much, it's very dizzying and disorienting to lose control. Living in Jesus or under grace means we have to give to God so many of the things that we'd rather take into our own hands. Grace threatens the world. It threatens our principles. It threatens our way of life. And so we snuff it out. We, we did snuff it out. In the crucifixion of Jesus, we are caught in the act. And these nails that some of you have, you're going to be encouraged to use later in a moment of devotion, they represent the, the limits, are the extreme limits that we will go to, to resist grace, to live in a world where we have control. This, this whole homily was in some ways inspired by a single sentence by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, there are only two possible ways of encountering Jesus. We must die, or we must put Jesus to death. I think it's much better for us to die. I'm going to close with this um, quote from Esther Perel. 
She is a, a Belgian psychotherapist. She was raised in the 1950s in a community of Holocaust survivors. Now she's the kind of person who gets interviewed on public radio, and she has a podcast that tens of millions of people listen to. But growing up, she grew up in this very bizarre, small village where she said every adult she knew as a child had been in the death camps and somehow made it out. Where in an interview a few years ago, someone asked her, how did growing up in such a place shape her image of the world? And this is what she said. There were two kinds of people in my community. There were people who did not die and people who came back to life. People who did not die often lived very tethered to the ground. People who came back to life had somehow found a way to reclaim passion. To my knowledge, Esther Perel is not a religious person, but she's saying there something profound about Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Today, we remind ourselves that we're implicated in Jesus' death. We're caught in the act by it. And in some ways, we've joined him in his death to a world that's governed by law, a world characterized by judgment. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore, all died. All died. That's good news. Why? Well, because we are people like Jesus, who also came back to life. People who live under grace. People with open hands. People who have somehow found a way to reclaim passion. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.